and you may be dismissed uh, this morning for Children's Church. Just a, a brief note, uh, we had a change in uh, our business meeting due to some weather issues last uh, last week and then of course this week, so John was not uh, he was not wrong. Uh, we changed the date on him, so he was right to wherever he's at, and uh, he didn't make the mistake. We we thought it'd be best to give us another week to go on. That being said, this Wednesday night we'll have our normal uh, seven o'clock prayer meeting, Bible study. I want to encourage you to be a part of that, uh, even as we understand, we know theologically that God answers prayers, right? That's a place where you're supposed to talk back to me. Amen? Amen. All right, that works out pretty good. So we know that theologically, uh, theoretically, but uh, Wednesday night we come and put that into practice. Uh, we, need to, we need to be um, living that out. And so I want to jo- ask you to join us for our Bible study and prayer on Wednesday night at 7. And, of course, our business meeting will be on the 24th, as mentioned. Well, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, you want to look at John chapter number 14. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through a study of the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. It's been a, uh, a joyful uh, journey, an encouraging journey as we've um, just spent the last however long it's been uh, considering the ministry and life of Jesus. And we have come to the section in our Bibles that's referred to as the Upper Room Discourse, that intimate time where Jesus is ministering to his disciples. Um, the world, their world, has been turned upside down, to say the least. I mean, it's almost like their head can't stop spinning. And it's here that Jesus begins to prepare them and minister to them for his own departure and uh, to help them uh, who are confused and overwhelmed, which reminds us that this is a great message for us as well because we're often like that, aren't we? Confused and overwhelmed. Well, there are times in our life where we need direction. We wonder what God's will is. We pray and ask and we think about the possibilities or the ends, the outcomes and Uh, Other times we feel burdened with things beyond our control, beyond our reach, or our capacity to take care of. Uh, We're unable to fix it. We're faced continually with our own weakness and mortality as those of you battling sickness and, and things that you will deal with the rest of your lives, at least this natural life. All of that um, brings us back to this reality that we should not dismiss this experience uh, that Jesus gives to us here to his disciples that in their own life in the trouble while he himself is getting ready to face his greatest test in trial the his thoughts have already been on his own his own um, crucifixion uh, he is uh, suffering, separation from the Father, and all of that, it is in a time like this that he does not seek to serve himself, but yet turns to minister to his disciples, showing his love for them. Now, you may not be looking at life where, uh, kind of in a negative sense that I've described, with whether it's sickness or burdens or any of those things like that. I read a story by Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage as he since he put it in print, I guess it's free to share now. 
uh, of his senior pastor he served under for nine years. And he said he was one of the calmest people you'd ever meet. Uh, always displayed uh, just kind of a response, a good response to to the situations around him. And he said one night he his wife woke up in the middle of the night and and he was on his hands and knees with his arms kind of cupped. And she looked at him and said, what on earth are you doing? And naturally, that's what a wife would say to her husband. Uh, probably some other stuff too. But she said, what are you doing? He was still asleep when he responded, uh, shh, I'm holding a pyramid of marbles. And if I move, they'll all fall down. And some of you may be living like that at this present moment. That you feel like you've got everything you're trying to hold together, and if you make the wrong move, the wrong step, or or all the pressure of it, it, it wouldn't take a lot for it all to come crumbling down. And what a joy to know that even in a situation like that, Christ seeks in, uh, with intentional ministry to you to encourage you and to encourage me. How does he minister to them? Well, he ministers to them by speaking to them. And we want to look at the promises that he gives, verses 1 through 6, but I don't want to miss that that reality. Our God is a God who speaks. And from the very beginning, the first reality, other than the self-existence of God, he before time began, we are told that God speaks. He said, let there be, and, and everything flowed out of that power and ability to speak. God speaks. Not only speaking the world into existence, we see that power displayed in creative act, but he, he does not leave fallen man to guess and wonder who he is. Kicked out of the garden, ran out from the presence of God because of sin, humanity creating all that they created, and yet in the midst of all of that, God speaks. He spoke to Noah, he speaks to Abraham, he spoke to Moses, Uh, He speaks to us today through the Son, Jesus Christ. He speaks so that we may know and we may understand. It's remarkable that much of our strength and courage in this life, in this Christian experience, as we're pilgrims and strangers in need of divine help and divine strength, comes from this, this gift, this reality that God has spoken that He speaks to us today. I don't mean that He speaks to us in the sense we hear an audible voice from heaven or any of those other things, which oftentimes is associated with God telling me this or or God telling me that. That, uh, That's suspicious, to say the least. What I'm saying is, and what the Bible reminds us, is that it is a living word. It is an active word to God's people today. And that he seeks to minister to us in this presence present moment through the very words that he has given to us and that is your bible it is still just as powerful just as relevant just as prominent and as peter would later on and say just as precious today as it were when they were penned and so we may at least as we face life and all of its troubles think about the ministry god gives to us through this great gift of his word he is speaking to us securing us and and in the context of uh, John chapter number 14 that sweet uh, few words and commands and promises that he gives to them uh, I want us to uh, see how they apply to us now 
All that to say is there's many things God has promised us and said that it's not contained in this section of Scripture. You, you know that. The whole Bible is a word to us. We should take it that way. But in particularly, he speaks to his disciples who's dealing with all that they're dealing with. And by necessity, since we're working through the book of John, speaking to us this morning in a particular way. And the first of which is that we might find courage. That we might find courage courage. Notice with me verse number one. Let me just read the first six verses and then we'll go back to verse number one. The Bible says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, If you are taking notes, I'll work through the heading of courage and comfort and clarity, at least in the first six verses. A lot more going on here, but I think that might help us as we walk through this, uh, the need for courage. It's interesting, he begins, verse number one, with let not your heart be troubled. And he's addressing the fact that they are troubled, that they're overwhelmed with the circumstances and all the news that had been going on. Um, Judas had left the room. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Uh, The next thing you know, Peter, the the ringleader of the 12, is going to deny him. Openly uh, uh, was told in front of the others. And so you see this kind of whirlwind of Jesus leaving and going away and they cannot come with him. And so to say they're troubled is an understatement. It is surprising in one sense because it's the very word that Jesus was expressed to describe Jesus earlier on in chapter number 13. In verse 21, you may recall, as we were going through that, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the word simply means to be stirred up or to be overwhelmed or be shaken as if being shaken almost off of your foundation, deep agitation, which Jesus experienced and the disciples now experiencing. And he tells them, don't be troubled. How can he say that when he himself was just troubled? Uh, one writer uh, put it this way, Jesus was troubled so that we might not be facing all that he faced. And I think that is a, a good point. But there's something that he's telling his disciples here and he's telling us is that in the midst of trouble and all that they're facing, not to, to be resigned to hopelessness. Not to be overwhelmed to the point of defeat or despair. It's not that we won't experience some of these emotions of darkness and, and even doubt at times in our life and, and defeat at other times in our life, but he looks to them, don't be given way to it. Don't let it possess you. Don't let it grip you or hold you. Don't be troubled in that sense. Don't be shaken. Well... What they need is they need courage. 
As Webster explains, it implies, courage implies firmness of mind and will in the face of danger or extreme difficulty. That's what he's telling these disciples. Is what he tells us in the middle of our own troubles, right? Don't be taken by it. Don't be shaken. Now, how do we get to that place? How do we have courage in the middle of that? Is it to ignore the fact that things are difficult? Is that a way of doing it? Is it to dismiss that there's dangers or hardships in the world around us? Well, that, that's not true. That would be lying to yourself in one way. The Bible never does that. What it does is it points you to something greater than what you're facing. I love the story of David and Goliath, and one day I'll have the courage to preach it. Uh, if you read anything about Old Testament studies and all that, you'll find out there's 40 different ways you're supposed to preach that. And everyone says, if you don't know it third way, you're wrong. So I haven't built that courage yet. Nevertheless, how does David face the adversary? Uh, with, with all description of Goliath and David, even Saul, or Saul, who won't get out of the tent, who is described as being bigger than everybody else in Israel, with all that description, you find this is a ridiculous pursuit. This kid's crazy. But how does he face it? His God was bigger than the giant, wasn't it? He said, I come to you because I'm a warrior, because I've been fighting all these years, all my 17 years of existence. Incidentally, uh, a gentleman worked with me at one time, roughly my same age. We were probably early 30s. He was working for me, and he, he, he was the kind of guy who would often say, well, I've been doing flooring for 30 years. And I'm like, you're barely 30. What do you mean you've been doing flooring for 30 years? <laughs> so did David face Goliath in that way? I, I've been fighting people since I was, you know, for 50 years. He's only 17. No, his, his ability, his willingness, his, his resolve in that moment was the fact that God was much bigger than the giant. You agree with that? And this has been the, the, the way the people of God have dealt with trials and situations all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, since the beginning, we see that in the midst of being overwhelmed and difficulty, we see both the positive and the negative example of not doing that, people turning to God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to these people. Don't be anxious. Don't be given way to despair resign to hopelessness. Let not your heart be troubled. How do you not do that? How do you live in a place of not being troubled? And he says you do that by believing in God. Now by this, he's not saying that you have this kind of, this, this sort of passive idea of faith. This, you know, you got it in a frame. You, you maybe got it out of out of some doctrinal statement, what faith is. He's saying that you're to actively believe in God. He's telling his disciples in the moment, everything looks black. They'll smite the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. You'll all depart from me. In the midst of they saying, believe in God. Believe in God. Now think about your own situation. What is he telling you in the middle of it? It's difficult. Well, that's true. The burdens are heavy. You're, you're trying to hold it all together. And he, he's saying to you in, in the middle where you feel like you're going to break, he says, believe in God. Trust God. And if you walk through the Psalms, isn't it, isn't it that expression of, of what Jesus is commanding 
explained for us in a thousand different ways as it speaks about seeking God, waiting on God, thirsting after God, trusting God, running to God, God being my strength and my refuge and my tower. He's being my aid, my help, my hope, or he tells his own heart in Psalms 42 to hope in God. All of that is expression of what Jesus is saying here. Believe in God. Trust God. I was thinking of Paul, when he speaks about the armor of the Lord in Ephesians chapter number 6, and he talks about all that truth you're to put on. Put on truth and the belt and all the things that you put on. He says, above all, take up the shield of faith. And there is something in that. Now, you could say faith in the sense of the Christian faith or a set of doctrines, a set of a set of truths or affirmation that may be true, but I think it has more to do with our faith, our belief, our trust in God in the midst of it. Our trust in what God has said and in the sense bringing us back in one way to, to being reminded that God is above all. His word is above all. His, his promises are good. And that's what he's telling us here. As one preacher has famously said, his speaking is his doing. And so he tells his disciples out of all that he's taught in the past 30 or the past three and a half years, believe in God, trust God, have faith in God. How do we do that? Well, Well, read through the Psalms and it teaches you, doesn't it? How do you do that in the middle of your own situation? In one sense, that's right. John, you pray. You seek God. You go to his word. You you, you get counsel with others. You, You remind yourself. You preach the gospel to yourself or preach those promises to yourself. And all of those is an expression in the midst of our own trouble, not giving way to it by putting our faith in God, resting, leaning on God. What is remarkable, he says not only this, believe in God in verse 14, 1, as a sense of he does not want us to be given way to that. But he says, believe in me. Incidentally, I just remind you of Psalms 1830, of the trustworthiness of God, why he can tell us to turn to God. He says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him Isn't that a beautiful reminder and jesus turned to his disciples and he says not only are you to believe in god but you're also to believe in me he is equal with the father the second person of the trinity god the son divine holy uh, some have rendered this verse, and maybe it's it's good to understand it that way. As you have believed in God, believe also in me. Jesus is going away. What he's saying to them, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will later on. He tells them at that point, earlier in John chapter number 13, but you can trust me just like you've trusted the Father. In fact, it's not it's not only a permission to do that, it's a command. He's saying, believe in me. Trust me in what I'm doing for you lean on jesus you have a faithful high priest this morning church and the bible tells us that so that in the midst of our own struggles that we can find courage to face them remain steadfast because we can trust our savior he never changes now our courage comes from the object of our faith and that is God, not just the Father here mentioned, but God the Son as well. 
And the more we come to know who God is and what Christ has done for us, the more we're equipped to not let our hearts be troubled. Well, notice, secondly, he not only provides them courage, but he also gives them a word of comfort. The comfort, I would say it this way, the comfort of home. And there's no place like what? They don't say that of, of there's no place like Walmart, do they? <laughs> Although there's not many places like Walmart. <laughs> there's no place like home. Notice he moves from this command to believe in God, dealing with their anxiety and their troubled spirits. He, he comes to verse number two, now offering them a word of comfort. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We could say in one sense, Jesus came to bring us home. Now, the KJ, King James Version has mansions, comes from the, the Latin, Jerome's translation, um, mansions, which has been the, the subject of many Southern gospel songs. How many of you got one in your mind right now? I've been singing one for two days, and I, I don't even know the name of it. I just got a mansion somewhere over on the hillside. That's all I got of the song. Um, I'm not meaning to crush that image in your mind if, if you want to hold that, and, and so I'm not speaking against your mansion um, and, and the promise that you'll have a mansion. The wording here is, in my father's house are many rooms. That's probably the best understanding of this passage. Uh, there's many rooms. Uh, this, of course, is a reference to heaven. He's speaking about heaven in the sense of the Father's house. And and there is a, a, a word here which is encouraging by the very fact that he says, my Father's house is not a shack on a hill. It's not a, a hotel with, with a vacancy sign kind of flashing because it's all filled up. And, and, and you know, when you go out... We went to Maine once, and, and you had a lot of those signs that says no vacancy. How many of you have been there? You felt like Jesus, didn't you? Or Jesus' parents, Bethlehem, no room in the inn. But nevertheless, you see this kind of vision that he wants his disciples to understand. He says, don't be discouraged because there's plenty of room for you in my father's house. They were fighting just before this discourse about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Who gets this side? Who gets that side? Who gets the best room? Who gets the whatever? And Jesus is saying, there's plenty of room in my father's house. And that's still true, isn't it? He wants us to know that, uh, that there is plenty of room in the father's house. We're not, we don't need to think of being in the overflow. Secondly, in this comfort, he wants us to understand that he is going was for their benefit. He is going to prepare a place for them. He's going to make it ready for them. And how does he do that? Well, this, of course, speaking to him, making it ready by his reconciliation between us and God. Is going to the cross and he's going to be raised from the dead and he's going to send into heaven all of that which is providing reconciliation, a means by which heaven will be ours, that we will be fit for heaven and heaven fit for us. It is Christ who is making this way possible. You'll see just in a little bit of him 
reflecting back again on that reality. So he's saying that there's plenty of room in my father's house, and I'm going to make it ready for you, a place prepared for you, and you will be prepared for it. And then if that is true, he tells them this great promise, doesn't he, in verse number 3, naturally, if I'm going to go make it ready for you, and I'm going to go make you ready for it, then I'm going to come get you. I'm not going to leave you abandoned. Isn't that good news? He says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you unto myself. It's not an it, is it? It's not just a GPS location that you can put in your phone and and get there. He's saying, don't you understand? Heaven itself is described as being in the presence of God. Uh, In fact, he describes it here in the text for us that I will again take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Wherever that is, whatever, whatever location that is, wherever heaven is, the new heaven and the new earth, it is described as being in the presence of God in a remarkable way that has never been seen before. That God will manifest himself to us in a way incomparable to what we've experienced now, even for those of you who've been following Christ for 50 years. Heaven will be much, much greater experience of fellowship with the Lord. It's a far cry from violins and clowns, isn't it? Or is it harps? Is it harps? A place we were made for and a place that was made for us. Lewis describes it as the satisfaction of our deepest longing. Some of you may be familiar with this quote where he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Is that really humanity's deepest longing? I think Ecclesiastes captures that a little bit when God has put eternity in our hearts and we are confounded continually with the futility of things not working or lasting or providing whatever satisfaction that they claim to do. In fact, our whole human existence is described of fighting and clawing and feeling the weight of an unjust world, knowing or at least thinking or hoping that there's some place where things work right, work as they ought to, where justice is carried out. Even those who reject the notion of God at all have within them that desire for utopia. Isn't that the whole thing with communism and Marxism as they sought to make a better world? Those we were, John Stott uh, quotes a, Uh, some guy out in left field, but anyway, in his book, The Cross of Christ, and saying what mankind's problem is, is they got all these foolish notions. We need a perfect environment to put them in so that we can flourish at our best capacity. And all of that is that reminder that we were made in the image of God and we feel the weight of the curse that we live under and there has to be something more, something right. And that rightness, that moreness, is found in God himself and in his presence. And so even some of the hardest people towards Christ or some of the hardest people towards, uh, towards God or towards the gospel still have that, that unsettledness, that desire of heaven and whatever it may be. Paul tells us that creation itself is groaning under the curse and weight, 
waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. He again tells us in another place that the sufferings that we face in this life is not just removed from us, but covered and overwhelmed by the glory of Christ coming to the saints. For this reason, heaven has been a great comfort, hasn't it? We desire, we want to be where God has originally created us, the echo of being created in his image and that purpose which he stamped on us in that longing for those things that make sense. And what he tells us this morning and what it speaks to us, a reminder is those who have been born again, heaven is a place that is prepared for us. And as we await that, he is preparing us for that place. But it is a place where we will be in the presence of our Savior. He will come get us. There's plenty of room there. And that's a reminder to you this morning, if you don't know Christ, It is not marked off because land is sparse. Because that um, too many people got in at the early part of it being opened up for us. And so there's very few vacancies now. Heaven is that great promise, that great gift to all those who come by faith to Jesus Christ. It is given to us. It is a, a great comfort to us that in the midst of all that you go through in this life... The best is yet to come. And isn't that really the reality of Paul's argument of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in, in 1 Corinthians 15? If hope in this life is all that we had, we're of all men most miserable because we denied ourselves and we've, we've suffered for, for no reason at all, but that isn't it. We have that promise of being in the presence of Christ. And there's great comfort for you and I, wherever you are in this life, uh, to know that Jesus will come again to take us to where he is. The third thing I want us to see is the clarity of direction, beginning in verse number four. Let me read again verse number three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Well, Thomas is a a very pessimistic guy. The only time you hear him speak, except for his great confession a little later on in the Gospel of John, is always negative. How many of you know people like that? How many of you got somebody like that in your your family? How many of you are married to somebody like that? Just raise your hand real quickly. (laughs) Nobody's looking. Uh, but he says really what what we all think in that situation, doesn't he? He's like, what are you talking about? We have no idea where you're going, why you're going, let alone how to get there. And if heaven is of such great comfort, um, we should not be mistaken in how we attain such a joy and privilege, you know? And so Jesus gives us clarity here. As he responds, verse number six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I know that culturally speaking in the world we live in, that this is deemed hateful and narrow-minded. I understand that uh, it closes the conversation down when it speaks about getting there some other way, whether it's good works or getting there any way you want to get, another religion. 
It does do all of those things. But it is not a statement of malice. It is a clear statement. It is an unquestionable statement. We have to understand that if we're going to be true to the Bible, that uh, with with any uh, honorableness about us, that we have to come to the understanding, despite what the world says and and what other movements say, that that if you're going to be biblical, or if you're going to take Jesus at His words, that He excludes any other way to heaven except through Him. I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? We know that there is a variety of perspectives about life and about God and about religious practices. But at the end of the day, as we come and read Jesus and take him at his word, there is no other means of blessing or assurance to be had except through that he provides. And this is Jesus' intent, not out of maliciousness, not out of cruelty, but it is out of love, isn't it? Uh, the truth is given to us in love. In fact, we know in John 3, as, as is explained to us, Jesus, the whole the Spirit coming and, uh, and opening our eyes, seeing the kingdom of God, and, and he, he gives us some explanation about all this when he says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into it, that whoever would believe in him might have everlasting life. There is no detour. There is no other way. God's provision given to us in love is seen in the words of Jesus here as being the way, the truth, and the life. Now, rabbis and, and, and people in Jesus' day had considered the law, the Torah, uh, Moses' commandments, given or God's commandments given through Moses as the way. That was the way to the blessed life. In fact, our Psalms open up with that reality, doesn't it? Psalms 1, blessed is the man, right? Why is he blessed? Because it's the law of the Lord, which is his delight. And in his way, uh, he walks and he, he's therefore blessed and uh, blessed by God and bears fruit and those things like that. Here Jesus is, maybe he's saying that because of that connection, but what he is saying is, no, I am the way to the blessed life. To be blessed by God, to, to even be blessed in that Psalms 1 sense, and it's truest intent is to be blessed only through and by Jesus himself. And you and I both know that, uh, that have been around church long enough because we understand there's no other restoration to God except through Jesus. In fact, there is no law that we could keep good enough or perfect enough that would restore us or that would open up any access. In fact, Paul tells us that the law is standing against us. Uh, It is exposing our guilt. It's too busy exposing our guilt and offense to save us. It was never meant to. And that's why he says in Galatians that in the fullness of time, Christ came born under the law, born of woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. You see, it is not through keeping a certain set of commandments. It's not through doing good or doing those things that we might have this everlasting life and assurance. It is through the clarity of what Jesus says that we trust in him and him alone. In fact, God has been pointing to this reality of Jesus all through Jesus' ministry 
to three of the disciples in Mount Transfiguration. He tells them, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And again, we might come to John chapter number 14 and say, here is Jesus, the beloved son sent by God, from God, out of love. We should listen to him. And what does he tell us? Well, he is the way to heaven, to the presence of God, to all blessings that may flow from God. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the truth, the the one who has come to declare the Father rightly and fully, and we cannot know the Father apart from him. He is the life, the one who gives life, has the right and authority to give life to whomever he will. Think about it this way. Should we stand before God and God ask us, why should I let you into heaven? And we say, well, you know, God, I, I, um, I was basically a good person. I mean, you know, figuratively speaking, basically sort of relative, I guess. But I was a good person and I did good things. Or maybe someone will stand before God. You know, I followed uh, hardly and rigorously the teaching of Joseph Smith or some of these other guys out there that claim to know the way to heaven. Or, you know, I should be led into heaven because I've rejected the establishment on both sides, you know, politically speaking from American standpoint. Or you would tell God, well, I should be loud into heaven because I helped the poor and, and I, I paid my taxes and, and many of these other things, maybe even good things to get in. What do you think God would say at that point? You know what? I never really thought about that. That was a pretty good plan. He wouldn't say that, would he? In fact, the very fact that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he, when he is in great agony, sweating great drops of blood, the Bible says, praying that if there be any other way, if there's any other way, the only begotten Son, always loved by the Father from eternity past, having, having conversation with his Father, saying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. God is not at that point saying there is no other way, going to say later on, oh yeah, except for that one I missed. In fact, that is a, an unthinkable reality to go through the cross to find several other paths to go to heaven. Jesus says without hesitation, doesn't he, in our passage, there is no other way to the Father except through him. The Father affirmed that in the garden. There is no other way. The church has proclaimed throughout the centuries, there is no other way. But what good news is there is a way. And isn't that the most remarkable thing? That there is a way. There's a way that you and I can have insurance. There's a way that we can have confidence. There's a way that we can lay our head down. We can face the end of our life with, with hope and anticipation, and joy because Christ has made it possible. He is the only way, and it is only cruel if it's a lie, isn't it? It's only cruel if it's a lie. Now, you know, we, as people in our society, I'm thinking, I know we wouldn't do that here in this congregation. It's it's a blizzard outside, and you're here, so evidently you wouldn't think this way. But, But, you know, if we had a disease of some sort, a sickness is a life-threatening disease, we wouldn't say to ourselves, well, you know, I know they said this is the only cure for that, but I think they're lying to me. Or I'm not going to take it. We wouldn't do that, would we? 
In fact, if it was life-threatening for us or somebody in our family, we would sell everything we had to get it and to be cured by it, wouldn't we? Well, of course, salvation is nothing that we can buy. Heaven is not for sale. New life and forgiveness is not, not up for grabs to the highest bidder. But can I give you this and remind you of this, that you can live with hope of being justified and forgiven by God, walking in fellowship, sanctified, that promise of being glorified, and it's all by faith. I would never have planned it that way, would you? That this great and precious gift that's been extended maybe even to you week after week or month, year after year of your life, extended to you saying it is yours by faith in Christ alone. That if you will turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you might have everlasting life. It is amazing. And think of how many people look at that offer of life, look at that offer of of promise and and that offer of forgiveness, that offer of heaven, and they turn their nose and reject and say, no, I'm a little bit smarter than that. I'll figure it out. I'll go around the system. I'll beat the system. The Bible says it's once appointed unto man to die, and after that, the judgment, isn't it? There is no beating the system in the end, but there is a way. Uh, through Christ, to have everlasting life. And what does that do for us? Let me just give you three things real quickly as time slips away. It calls us to make sure we're on the right path, doesn't it? If anything, Jesus' words here of saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, it calls us to, to see whether or not we're trusting in Jesus. Where's our assurance? Where's our confidence? And I would say if your faith can't be tested in the sense of evaluated whether or not you're trusting Christ, then you probably ought to do some praying and soul searching. Are you trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and for your salvation? Not only does it call us to make our calling election sure to use Peter's language, it strengthens our stride as we move towards our Savior knowing that we have been forgiven and we will be accepted is that what he's saying if you come through me you will make it to the father that's what he's saying there in in essence isn't he and if you come through me and you have you have that promise of coming to the father being reconciled to the father then in father's house that has many rooms one of them's got your name on a nameplate isn't that good news you find that encouraging church not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You get up there, you won't be a stranger. It's be all prepared for you, whatever color you like. I may be making that up, but you know what I mean. Well, it gives us strength that we need because you know, sometimes we're just, sometimes we face trouble and trials and discouragement. Paul again points us to that eternal perspective over and over through 2 Corinthians. The third thing I would say is most significant. It empowers the church. It empowers us for confident ministry as we preach Christ and Him crucified, doesn't it? And Jesus says, I am the only way. He says it's so clear. And there's a lot of things we can be confused about in the Bible. Can you agree with that? I mean, who's the Nephilim? I don't know. 
we had that discussion in our live class, didn't we, guys? Y'all got it figured out? Hopefully, when at Friday, I'll see you, and you can tell me tell me what you got over the summer break. I mean, there's a lot of things we can get lost in, but Christ made this, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, made this so plain and clear that the only way to the Father is through the Son. Therefore, when Paul comes to Corinth, he says, I preach nothing, uh, nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Dear friends, it still works, doesn't it? The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Christ and Him crucified, preparing a place for us. And not only something that we preach and teach and we share, we do that to one another. Because you need to be reminded of the comfort you have. You need to be reminded of the courage he provides through what he's done for us. But it's also what we share with those outside in our community, in our society, in our families. So take heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Be reminded of the comfort you have in, uh, in heaven uh, with Christ and know with clarity that if you put your faith and trust in him, you have come to the right provision that God has given for us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy. Lord, I'm just reminded of the Psalms where it's new, or just reminded where it's new every day. Psalms 23, where your goodness and mercy will be with me always. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for the word that you have given us. Thank you for the promises and the reminders. And I pray that whoever's here this morning, whatever weight they're under, oh Lord, that you would just offer a uh, some grace, some strength in the middle of that, a cool breeze on a hot day. That's a funny thing to say on a day like today, but you know what I mean. And Father, we need comfort. We often find ourselves in places that you have placed us by your divine providence. Not to lean on our own strength, but in our weakness to lean on the strength that you provide. Help us to do that. And Father, I pray if anyone here does not know you, God, I pray that even even today they would reach out and by faith reject the way that they have been carving out for themselves and put their faith and trust in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.